series in Acts as well as our mini-series on the Kingdom of God. So with the entire Bible to choose from for the message this morning, I decided to start with a U.S. history lesson. <laughs> Sixty years ago, President Eisenhower, as, a point of a, as part of a joint resolution with the Congress, established our first national motto. That means for the first 180 years of our existence, we didn't have a national motto. And it's amazing that we could survive that long without one. Actually, the motto was that they had formally adopted was actually written much earlier, actually during the early part of the Civil War, because near the beginning of that war, a minister from Pennsylvania petitioned the then Secretary of State, Salmon Chase, with these words. He said that we should have a recognition of the Almighty God in some form on our coins. Secretary Chase agreed and gave the order to the Mint in Philadelphia, and shortly thereafter, the first national motto appeared on the two-cent coin. Now, by the time President Eisenhower and Congress formally adopted these words as our national motto almost 100 years later, the U.S. had this motto on all of our coins, and today we see it printed on all of our paper currency. And that motto, of course, is, In God We Trust. Now, if I had heard that for the first time this morning, my response would be, Really? Really? Because our trust in God is not all that obvious, is it? It's at least very inconsistent. Now, the motto was originally created during a time of tremendous stress and pressure. It was created during the Civil War, and then it was ratified, or it was selected as our national motto after another time of tremendous stress, right after World War II. And that's pretty revealing to me, because our nation is most likely to turn to God during times of stress and uncertainty. That's what we saw 15 years ago after the 9-11 terrorism bombings. As a nation, we turned our attention to God in ways that I never thought possible. But it didn't last. Six months later, when the crisis seemed to be less severe and the future a little less uncertain, our nation simply went back to the sources of trust that we had on September 10th. Our military might our economic power, our allies perhaps, even our reputation and our influence in the world. Because our nation's trust in God seems to cycle up and down based on how much trouble we're in. But that's hardly unique or remarkable. Think about the history of Israel in the Bible. It's the same thing. Israel's trust in God was strongest when they were in a crisis and weakest when things seem to be going relatively well. But it's not only true in general terms about the USA and about Israel and about other God-fearing nations. It's true about most of us individually. We probably wouldn't be bold enough to state it so plainly, at least I wouldn't, but our actions often say, 
in me, I trust. Until it becomes very obvious that I'm dealing with more than I can. Otherwise, in me, I trust. And that's also an attitude that's not so unique or remarkable. What would be remarkable is a person who really lives our national motto, In God We Trust. To me, what would be really remarkable is a person who places his or her trust in God all the time, even when things are going relatively well. And such a remarkable man was Daniel in the Bible. So I'd ask you to turn with me uh, to the book of Daniel, not too far from the book of Jonah that we just read from. It's a very familiar story. We're going to look at Daniel in the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6. It's a story that has been very meaningful to us generation after generation, and hopefully it'll be meaningful to us again this morning. So Daniel chapter 6. Before we read that chapter, the end of the chapter is a part that is familiar to most of us. Because as a form of capital punishment, Daniel was locked up in some sort of den or cage full of lions and left overnight to be killed and eaten. Apparently, it was an effective means of execution, but miraculously, Daniel was found unharmed the next morning. And Daniel's testimony to the elated king who found him was, My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. Now, we don't know who God's angel was. It could have been the pre-incarnate Christ, or it could have been one of God's angels. But in either case, what we're going to read today is a story of God rescuing Daniel from certain death. And it's a story that we use to teach our children about trusting God. Trusting the God who is sovereign over the most powerful king on the earth at that time, and a God who is more powerful than hungry lions. And we all remember the end of the story because it's so remarkable. After all, how many people do you know who have survived a night in a den of hungry lions? But we're going to concentrate instead of on the end of the story today on the beginning, the first half of Daniel chapter 6. We're going to concentrate on verses 1 through 15 before Daniel finds himself in the lion's den. And I find that beginning of the story just as remarkable as the end of the story, perhaps even more remarkable. So as we read this chapter, I want you to help me look for biblical principles that we can apply to our own lives. One of the things I find really interesting about the Old Testament as we study it is that the principles are not always explicitly expressed. Sometimes we have to search them out. We have to depend on the Holy Spirit to show us what it is that God wants to teach us. So as we study this story again this morning, a familiar story, let's look for principles about trusting God. And we'll do so by trusting the Holy Spirit to make those clear to us. So if you would, let's stop right now before we read the scriptures and ask the Holy Spirit to show us what he has in store for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open up this book of Daniel, your gift to us this morning, 
We pray that you might open our minds to show us what it is you want us to learn today. Father, we trust you that your word never returns to you empty. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach me and show me and my friends here what it is you want us to pick up from you this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me then the uh, first five verses of Daniel chapter 6. Actually, we'll start in the, uh, with the last two verses of chapter 5. So I'll start in verse 30 of chapter 5. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Let's stop there for a minute and establish some context over the two main characters that we see in these first few verses of chapter 6. First of all, Daniel. You're familiar with Daniel. He was a Hebrew. He was taken to Babylon as part of the first deportation when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. And as a young man with useful skills and abilities, he was put in service for this pagan king. And he served him well. And despite his young age and the totally pagan environment into which Daniel was forced to live, Daniel maintained a keen understanding and unwavering faith in the one true God, Yahweh. And Yahweh gave him the very useful gift of interpreting dreams. And if you haven't read the first five chapters of Daniel recently, I encourage you to do so. I don't think you'll find a better example of trusting God than in Daniel's early life. But by the time chapter 6 comes to pass, Daniel has been in Babylon for about 65 years, serving several Babylonian kings. Now, we're not told how old or maybe more accurately how young Daniel was when he came to Babylon, but he was likely in his earlier mid-teens, which would make Daniel at this time at least 80 years old. That's Daniel. The second main character we see in these first few verses is Darius. And you'll have to help me because I'll call him Darius more times than not. Darius, I think, is the right pronunciation. What we read in the last couple of verses of chapter 5 is the dramatic fall of the Babylonian Empire and the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, initially, this empire was an alliance between two, two 
countries or two nations, the Medes and the Persians, but the Persians were the more dominant and most powerful of the two. And their initial king was King Cyrus. King Cyrus. So who is King Darius that we see mentioned in this passage? It's clear from the passage that this Darius was a ruler in the area of Babylon where Daniel lived, but the Bible scholars are not exactly sure who he was. <clears throat> There's a couple of possibilities. One is that Darius was not a proper name, but it was instead an honorary title used, to, used by the Persian kings. So Darius may simply be referring to King Cyrus, and a term used much like Caesar was used to describe later Roman emperors. But a problem with this interpretation is that Darius is referred to as a Mede in the verse we just read, 531. Cyrus was a Persian. So the second, I think maybe the most likely possibility, is that this Darius was a vice-regent or a local king that had been set up by Cyrus to rule the region of Babylon as Cyrus consolidated his vast empire. And it sort of makes sense when we read the last verse of chapter 6, which says, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now I know what you're thinking, TMI, too much information, way too much information. And as you can tell, I really like history, particularly biblical history, which is actually kind of curious because I can't even remember the dates when my children and grandchildren were born. So far, I still remember Pam's birthday. So far, so far. So let's dig into the biblical text. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. It's apparently very early in the Persian Empire and Darius is setting up the new government that consists of 120 provinces, each led by a satrap, it's called here, or a provincial governor. And these governors were, un were organized under three commissioners, or cabinet members, if you will. And Daniel was one of the three cabinet members. Now, that's pretty amazing in itself in light of the fact that Daniel was in exile from Jerusalem, well advanced in years, and previously a very loyal servant of the former regime, the Babylonians. So there had to be something very special about this man, Daniel, to be chosen by the new king. And we see it in verse 3, Daniel's exceptional qualities called here his, except his extraordinary spirit became even more apparent to the king so he planned to change the way he had organized his government and he planned to make Daniel in charge of the entire kingdom not just one third of his kingdom and then in verse 4 when Darius reveals his plan to the 120 governors and the other two commissioners they set out at once to discredit Daniel and remember, some of these governors reported to Daniel, so they knew him really well. If we look back to verse 2, we get a glimpse of what these men were put in place to do. They were there to ensure that the king did not suffer loss. 
Now the king had armies and soldiers to protect him physically. These men were put in place to protect him financially. They were put in place to ensure that the taxes and duties that were due to the king were paid and used properly. Now the Persian Empire stretched from what is today Turkey on the west to India on the east and all the way south to what is today Ethiopia in Africa. So it was a huge empire. And historical documents indicate that the annual tax revenue of the Persian kings was in excess of 500 tons of silver per year. So the opportunities for corruption were plentiful, especially for those in power like Daniel and the other government officials. So to discredit Daniel before King Darius, all they had to do was simply tell him about one or two incidents where Daniel took advantage of his position. Or one or two instances where Daniel simply turned a blind eye while those who worked for him took advantage. But verse 4 says they could not find a single instance of corruption or negligence in Daniel. Nothing. So in verse 5, frustrated, the government officials then make this statement. We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. In other words, we can stop looking for trash on Daniel because we're simply not going to find it. They had proven what they already knew, that the king had made a great choice. And so they concluded that their only chance to put Daniel at bias was to put him in a situation where he, had, where he had to choose between the king and God. Why? Because they knew without a doubt that Daniel would choose God. So let's keep reading, starting in verse 6 through 15. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in the roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you... 
not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den. The king replied, the statement's true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. Or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king. That it is the law of the Perds, the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So we see in verses 6, 7, and 8 that Daniel's co-workers make an agreement with each other to trick the king. To trick him into writing a law that they know Daniel will violate. So pandering to the king's ego and perhaps to his need to consolidate his kingdom, they suggest a law that established a month during which King Darius is the only person or God who could be prayed to. Their proposal was to make the following month King Darius Awareness Month in Babylon. And the proposed law included a horrifying death in a den of lions for those who dared to disobey. And in verse 7, we see that their proposal was presented as a unanimous recommendation of all the commissioners of the kingdom, insinuating to the king that Daniel, the king's most trusted official, was actually in favor. In verses 8 and 9, King Darius enacts the law, which in the tradition of the Persian legal system could not be repealed or changed. We see this same law in the book of Esther, which occurred about 50 years later, this same rule of infallibility of the Persian kings. Now in verse 10, Daniel, of course, eventually learns about the edict. And what does he do? He continues doing exactly what he was doing previously. Formerly praying to Yahweh three times a day at his home. Now if anyone understood the seriousness of a law passed by the Persian king, it would have been Daniel. Yet he also understood the seriousness of God's call for faithfulness and fidelity to him. And so when faced with the necessity To choose between the king and God, Daniel chooses God. Exactly as the other commissioners knew he would. In verses 11 and 12, Daniel's advisors come then by agreement and caught Daniel praying to God. Something actually that Daniel was not trying to hide. Then these men run and remind the king about his new law before revealing to the king their surprise. In verse 13, the men tell the king that Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, is breaking his new law. Now obviously, King Darius knows who Daniel is. 
They don't have to identify him as one of the exiles from Judah. So it appears to be a derogatory term, probably intended to remind the king that these Jews have this bad habit and persistent resistance to trust any sovereign other than their God. And so in verses 14 and 15, King Darius realizes he's been tricked and he's been trapped. Tricked by his officials into incriminating his most trusted leader and trapped by his inability to repeal the bad law he had passed. And after exerting himself, the scriptures say in verse 14, all day long, he couldn't find a way out of his dilemma. Now, how might he have exerted himself? I'm pretty sure he put all the pressure he could bring to bear on those who were accusing Daniel, trying to attempt them to recant their accusations. But they apparently would not. I'm also pretty sure he gave Daniel the opportunity to deny the accusation and likely encouraged Daniel to do so, but Daniel apparently stood fast in his trust of God. And now in verse 16 comes the more familiar part of the story. Let's read it. Starting in verse 16. Then the, men, then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing could be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn and at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I found, was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in God. The king then gave orders and they brought these men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives, into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then Darius, the king, wrote to all the peoples, na nations, and the men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to, be, are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has ever delivered Daniel from the power? Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? 
So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now we're not going to spend a lot of time on these more familiar verses other than to note that it was Yahweh. It was the God of Daniel. It was, as is said in verse 20, the living God, our God, who was very busy during these verses. It was God who put in the mind of King Darius the trust that he would rescue Daniel from the lions in verse 16 and verse 20. And then in verse 22, it was God who sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions and declared Daniel innocent. In verse 24, it was God who released the mouths of the hungry lions. And it was God who was praised and exalted by the pagan king Darius across his entire kingdom. And what indication do we have in this passage about why God did all this? Look with me at verse 23. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel surviving the lion's den is a story about God honoring the trust that Daniel had placed in him. But the insight I think we need to understand this morning is... What trust? What trust was God honoring? One possible answer is, is obvious. Daniel trusted God to save him from the lions. We could say that Daniel turned to God because he was facing a situation of extreme stress and uncertainty. We could say that Daniel found himself in a crisis for which he had no answer and no ability to save himself. And so he placed his trust in God. And to some degree, we'd be right by saying that. But, what, but based on what we read in the first half of the chapter, I think we'd be missing the principles that God is trying to teach us this morning. At least the principles that he is trying to teach me. Because long before Daniel trusted God for protection in the den of lions, he trusted God in the mundane details of everyday life. So let's go back to the first half of the story and see if we can explore some principles that God has in store for us. And for the sake of time, I'm going to propose two principles for our consideration. And those principles you see on the screen. Number one, that trusting God in the mundane helps us trust Him when life gets difficult. And the second, trusting God in the mundane is a powerful witness to a watching world. So let's look first at principle number one. Trusting God in the mundane helps us trust Him when life gets difficult. Look with me at verse 4. I think it's one of the key verses 
in the first half of Daniel chapter 6. It's on the screen for you. It says, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. And no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So the verse says even Daniel's enemies knew he was faithful. Faithful to what? Or faithful to whom? The king? Certainly. His job responsibilities? His duties? Certainly. But there's more because look at again at their conclusion in the very next verse, verse 5. It says, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. These men knew Daniel was faithful to the laws of Yahweh. Now, I don't know if, the, if his accusers put verse 4 and 5 together or not, but we certainly can. There was no negligence or corruption in Daniel because he was faithful to the law of his God, even as he executed his responsibilities in government affairs. And remember, Daniel had held high position in the Babylonian and Persian governments for over 60 years. So they had a lot of evidence to sift through. Now this was a time not unlike our own. When it was common for people in powerful positions to line their own pockets or grant unwarranted favors to their friends or establish laws and rulings that benefited themselves or skew the testimony in their favor or to destroy their enemies. But Daniel apparently followed God's guidance and did the opposite of what many others were doing. Let's think about that for just a minute. In Daniel's 65 years of government service, Daniel must have made hundreds of thousands of important decisions. Yet these men could not find one that would serve as ammunition to discredit Daniel before King Darius. It must have been baffling to these men. Now to be sure, Daniel wasn't perfect. We know from scriptures that he sinned just like every other human being. But the testimony of these men was that Daniel was faithful to the laws of his God much more often than most of us are. The testimony was about Daniel was that in God he trusted. Now those familiar with the story of Daniel will remember his first documented test of trusting God when he faced 65 years earlier in Babylon. The young Daniel trusted God by keeping God's dietary laws for the Jews instead of partaking in the royal sumptuous food that was made available to him from the king. So Daniel trusted God. God was faithful. Daniel's willingness to trust God or faith as we call it was even stronger than it was before. And this cycle must have repeated itself hundreds of thousands of times over the course of Daniel's 65 years in Babylon. 
When Daniel was faced with a decision, he trusted God's guidance instead of the seemingly attractive ways of the Babylonian and the Persians. And God showed himself faithful yet again, and Daniel's willingness to trust God was ingrained even more in his extraordinary spirit. And after 65 years of trusting God in the mundane activities of life, what do we see Daniel do in verse 10 when he learns about the king's directive outlawing prayer to God? More importantly, what do we not see Daniel doing? We don't see him denying the charges. We don't see him going to King Darius to complain or implicate the other commissioners. We don't see him just lying low for 30 days and letting this silly law pass. We don't see him wringing his hands wondering what to do. Actually, we don't see him hesitating at all. Instead, we see him continuing his well-known practice of praying to Yahweh. Now, Daniel was a smart man. And he knew he had been set up. And he knew, God's, he knew his adversaries would somehow make his practice known to the king. But he trusted God anyway. After 65 years of trusting God and finding him trustworthy, he had every reason to continue doing so and no reason to stop. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 say this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. It says when we trust God wholeheartedly in all our ways, even the mundane details of life, and ignore the flawed understanding we have on our own, God will make our path straight. In other words, we won't have to worry about which way to go. God will make his direction clear. And we don't have to worry about the directions of right and wrong changing in midstream based on the circumstances. It's interesting to me that this scripture doesn't say God will make our path easy. It says he'll make our path easily understood. God says he'll make our path straight. And that's what we see here with Daniel, isn't it? When this ungodly law was passed, Daniel's path forward to him was very clear. Even though he must have known it was not going to be easy. And later, when he stood before the king at the mouth of the lion's den, the path forward at that time was also very clear. And obviously not easy. So the first principle I'm proposing is that trusting God in the mundane helps us trust him when life gets difficult. Let's look at the second principle. Trusting God in the mundane is a powerful witness to a watching world. As we read in this passage, it's very clear that Daniel's trust in the everyday mundane issues of life had a powerful impact not only on Daniel but also on those around him. 
Now, sometimes that impact resulted in hatred and persecution, like it did with the men who set up and condemned Daniel. You know, it would be somewhat understandable if a few men opposed Daniel's pending promotion because they thought they were in line for the top job. But that's not what the scriptures say. I said somewhat understandable because we could convince ourselves that they were driven by the desire for the top job, not necessarily the dislike of Daniel. But what do the scriptures say? The op opposition was total, widespread. And for that, there's really only one explanation. Why would so many officials be opposed to a man in whom, in their own words, there was no negligence or corruption? Because he made their own negligence and corruption painfully obvious, not only to themselves, but to each other. And their solution was to silence Daniel, make him go away. At the end of the passage about Nicodemus that we studied two weeks ago, Jesus says this in John chapter 3 verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. When we are consistently trusting God in the everyday mundane issues of life, we shouldn't be surprised if some people don't approve or if some people are even repulsed by us. It's a very normal reaction for someone who is without Christ. So sometimes trusting God in the everyday mundane issues of life results in hatred or persecution, but thankfully, at other times it results in drawing people to God. Look at King Darius as an example. Long before Daniel stepped foot in the den of lions and gave Darius a remarkable example of trusting God in a crisis, Daniel had already impacted the king by his remarkable trust of God in the mundane. Look back at verse 3. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. The kingdom saw something special in Daniel. And it wasn't simply that he seemed to always make good decisions or that he was always prepared or that his accounting ledgers were always accurate. The king saw something special about this man. He possessed a spirit that was not common to King Darius. And then look at verse 16. Before Daniel goes into the lion's den... Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. Then the king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. To me, that's really, really incredible. That at the mouth of the lion's den, the king was testifying to Daniel about God instead of Daniel testifying to the king. And what was the king's testimony? Daniel, I've watched you constantly serving and trusting in your God, and you've never wavered. 
and I've seen the results of your trust. And so I have no doubt that you are trusting God now and that he is going to deliver you. Daniel, trusting God in the everyday mundane issues of life, impacted the king and drew him closer to God. Daniel's God, the living God. So the impact of Daniel's trust on God resulted in two very different results. Hatred and persecution in the case of the other administrators, drawing others closer to God, Darius. But the driving force for both of these was exactly the same. The driving force was that Daniel's continuous trust in God was very different. It wasn't normal from the king's perspective, and it wasn't normal in the eyes of the other administrators. Daniel was different. Daniel stood out. So the principles that stuck with me as I studied Daniel chapter 6 were these two. Trusting God in the mundane helps us trust Him when life gets difficult. And trusting God in the mundane is a powerful witness to a watching world. Do those make sense? You know, if so, let's do what we should always do with biblical principles, and that's apply them to our own lives and our own circumstances. And so I want to do so by asking us all three questions. The first question is, have you started trusting God in your life by trusting God with your life? I ask that because before Daniel could trust God in the everyday issues of life, he had to trust God with his life. He had to trust that God was sovereign and someone he should follow. He had to trust that God had a better way. He had to believe that God was trustworthy. And so some of you today may be saying to yourself, what has God done to show himself worthy of my trust? And actually, that's a really good question. And one that could take a long time to answer because God is so trustworthy. And in fact, the Bible is a, is a display from beginning to end of God's trustworthiness. But fortunately, Jesus summed it up for us in one sentence. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. According to Jesus, why should we trust God with our lives? Jesus says, because despite our many faults and our serious shortcomings, he loves us so much that he gave us his son, the second member of the Trinity, to suffer and die so that we might be forgiven and saved. And how do we start trusting God? Simply by believing that Jesus Christ is God and that he died not in general for the sins of the world but for your sins specifically. That's it. That's how we trust God with our lives. Now I get a real kick out of what Darius did following the crisis of Daniel and the lion's den. Not the part about feeding the lions, but the part about issuing an edict, passing a decree 
ordering that all the people living in his kingdom were to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. King Darius's or Darius's edict was like establishing in God we trust as the official motto of the Persian Empire. Now even though this edict could not be repealed or changed, how successful do you think it was? How do you think the people responded? And if they responded at all, how long do you think it lasted? We actually don't have to think very hard about that, do we? It wasn't the least bit successful because we can't make someone trust. We can make them comply. We can make them act like it, at least on the outside, but trust has to be earned. Now, actually, it's too bad that edicts like King Darius's don't work because if they did, I'd use the temporary authority you've been giving me as your guest preacher, and I'd do the same thing. I'd command that everybody in this room is to trust God with your lives. And while we're at it, I'd extend that command to my dad, my brothers, other family members, friends, all the boys at Miracle Farm, everyone I used to work with at Dow, our political leaders and candidates, and on and on and on. Just like King Darius, I'd extend my edict to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in the land. In fact, I'd make in God we trust the motto for this church and the motto for the Dow Chemical Company and for Olin Corporation and for the Brazosport School District and for the Lake Jackson City Council and for Bucky's and whoever. But it wouldn't work any better for me than it did for King Darius. Because trust has to be earned. And all I can do is share with you what God has done to earn your trust. Whether or not you trust your life to God is, is a decision that's between you and God. God has stated his case in Jesus Christ. You have to decide whether you believe God is trustworthy or not. So what do you say? For those of us who are already working with walking with Christ, I have this question. Does your trust in God cause you to stand out? Would an observer say that your spirit at home or at work or at school or at the restaurant this afternoon is extraordinary? That would be remarkable. Do the people who are around us the most, our families, our neighbors, our church, our co-workers, our classmates, know with confidence that no matter what the consequences may be, we are going to take the straight path God lays out before us. That would be remarkable. Is it feasible that someone would say of us, we will never find any basis for charges against this man or this woman 
unless it has something to do with the laws of his God. That would be remarkable. Remember, it's our trust in God in the everyday, mundane issues of life that can have the biggest impact. And take it from Daniel, it's never too late. <clears throat> As I said, he had been in government service for 65 years before being faced with the lion's den. But he had only been in service of King Darius for a very short period of time. Yet Darius almost instantly noticed that Daniel stood out. So we might be tempted to think it's too late for us to impact our family or our friends or our co-workers. God's word in Daniel chapter 6 would say, think again. And we might also be tempted to think it's too late for us to impact our country. You know, we are blessed with a country where, where we get to elect our government leaders. And one part of the blessing for me is that periodically I have to stop and assess where our country is and where we're going. And quite frankly, I don't like where we are and I'm not at all excited about where we appear to be headed. So it's real easy for me to think it's too late for us to impact our country. But God's word in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14, a familiar passage, says, think again. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. It's a promise God made to the nation of Israel that I believe also applies to all of his children. And what does it say in the terms we've been using today? He says, if my people will trust me, humble themselves, pray, seek God, and walk down the straight paths that I have set before them, he says, turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. So does your trust in God cause you to stand out? It's not too late. The third question I have for us all, I'm going to let you answer out loud. <laughs> And that question is, when will you get your next opportunity to trust God? When? When? Somebody answer. Now. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, finish this study of Daniel... I realize that there are those among us who don't find anything mundane about life right now. For we have people here who find themselves in the middle of their own lion's den, be it medical or financial or relationship difficulties. 
So, Father, as you delivered Daniel from the lions, we pray that you would deliver our friends as well. We don't know what that deliverance might look like, but we know that in your perfect way and in your perfect timing, your perfect delivery, that you can deliver them because we know that you're trustworthy. Father, for those of us who aren't in the lion's den, I pray that you would help us stand out a little more this afternoon than we did this morning. That we might trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we continue to worship this morning?